everybody. How's everybody doing? And uh, it's so good to see all of you here on this cold Sunday morning. And I'm glad that we have an opportunity that we can worship together in a warm building. And I'm thankful that you're here and God bless you for being here uh, this morning. Um, Lots of people have requested that I pray for them. They've been sick. And how many knows the flu or whatever's going around, you know? And so can we just pray for those who are sick this morning? I, I can't remember everybody's name, but I also don't want to be a liar either. I told him I'd pray for him, all right? So uh, lift your hands. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. Open our ears and hearts that we would hear your voice this morning. Anoint me as I preach your word. Let me speak your word with power and in boldness this morning. Let your word be transformative in our hearts. And Lord, those who are suffering in their bodies this morning, we just pray complete and divine healing and strength over their lives. And everyone said a great big amen. And if you're watching online today, we welcome you and thank you for joining in. Would you give a great big God bless you to all those who are watching online today, part of our church family. Amen. And just a quick announcement, um, right after church today, we have Discover Christ Point. Now, what in the world is that? What's found in the name? I want you to come and discover if you like Christ Point, right? And it's a welcome dinner. And so if you are new to Christ Point, if this is your first or second time, or maybe you've been attending for a while and uh, you want to get to know myself and my wife and our family and the pastoral staff and learn about the church. This is a great opportunity for you to stay free childcare, free dinner, free lunch. You don't even have to go out after church today and spend money. We already have it made for you. Our discipleship pastors have it prepared. And so we're excited. So right after church, To my left, right over here, uh, we'll have some ushers greeting you to go in that room in the left there. There's some tables, and and so we would love to serve you today. So if you're new and you've been attending and want to learn about Christ Point and myself and the staff, please stay for a few moments, all right? And uh, tonight we do have church, and I'm excited about tonight. We don't have church every Sunday night, but tonight we will, and I got a special word for you. So come out tonight and worship the Lord. And don't forget that next Sunday is our Christmas service. Everybody shout Christmas service. And we have three Christmas services next Sunday morning. And I want you to invite somebody, all right? So make sure you're here next Sunday morning. It's going to be filled with activities. And, uh, and then that Sunday night at 5 o'clock, we're going to have a kid's play. And so I encourage you to come out next Sunday night at 5 o'clock. And then directly right after that, we're going to the gym. And we're going to have a crazy Christmas featuring Little Debbie. Do you know what that is? We're going to have Little Debbie snacks. All right? And it's going to be awesome. So everybody shout next Sunday at 5 p.m., is the what? The kids play. And directly after that, we're going to have a crazy Christmas. And all I need you to do is wear a crazy Christmas hat. All right. And bring a finger food. All right. And that's next Sunday night, right after the kids play. And then on Christmas Eve at nine o'clock at night, we have a Christmas Eve service. And then on Christmas day, we're going to have a Christmas service. It's going to be awesome. Wonderful opportunity for you to teach your children 
that the purpose of Christmas is Christ and to worship together as a family, all right? And so, um, and so thank you. Those are just a few things that's coming up, and we just want you to be prepared. Invite somebody next week. It's going to be wonderful, especially the big Christmas party, all right? Without further ado, I'm in a sermon series called What a Name. Everybody shout, What a Name. What a name, what a name. Lord, we pray today that as we go into the sermon and as we conclude the service in a little bit, I pray that our lives will be transformed and changed today and let your word go forth in power. And everyone said, amen. Names are very, very important. I think naming your child is probably one of the most important things a parent can do. If you could fix this monitor up here, I'm hearing voices, and uh, I don't know if my mind is playing games on me, but I'm hearing some interference of people talking. So um, we just want to say hello to them, all right? promise you I took my medicine today. All right. So I don't know what voices I'm hearing up here, but uh, I'm preaching on some names. So I don't know what the, what's going on up here. Everybody just stretch your hands for us. Say, Lord, help the pastor today. So if you can just fix it this morning, that would be great. And if you can't fix it, well, guess what? I'm going to preach anyway, right? So, <laughs> so names are very important. I think naming your child is one of the most important things a parent can do. Because names convey not only meaning, but they also convey purpose. And names also convey identity. Now in the Bible, the giving of a name meant several things. I know we have some Bible students this morning. And if you search the pages of the scriptures, you'll quickly understand that names especially in the Bible, really did signify a change, a purpose, or identity. For example, remember when God wanted to establish a purpose? God sometimes would change people's names. Remember, Jacob, was his name was changed to Israel. Or sometimes when God wanted to do a, uh, communicate a particular message, He would send an angel and say, name this child this. Or names sometimes represented an aspect of a person's birth. For instance, Moses was drawn out of the water. His name means to draw out. Or it represents a reaction to a birth. Remember Isaac? His name means laughter. Sarah was filled with laughter because she gave birth at an old age. So she named him Isaac. And sometimes names were given to secure a family lineage, such as John the Baptist. So names in Scripture signified several things. It signified purpose. It signified uh, destiny. It signified uh, uh, identity. Names were very, very important. And one of the most important things about the Christmas story, as we have been exploring together, is that the angel came to a man by the name of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, 
and said this in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. Hear the words of the scriptures this morning. But while he thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. When God wanted to communicate a message, sometimes he sent a name. And Jesus' name means Yahweh. It, it, it actually means uh, Joshua. It means salvation is of the Lord. The Bible says in Acts chapter number 4 and verse number 12, the apostle said this, and I quote, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. Jesus' name signified his purpose, his identity, and his calling. And what was that? The angel said, name him Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. Are you thankful that Jesus came to save us from our sins? He came to save us from our sins. And isn't that the problem of our society today? We have dealt with so much of the cobwebs that we forgot that there is a spider loose. The problem in our society is not porn, drunkenness, or perversion, or homosexuality. The problem of our society is sin, rebellion against God. And the Christmas story reminds us that a baby would be born, his name would be called Jesus, and he will do a particular thing. He will save us from our sins. Boy, I'm thankful for that. He will save us. And that is why I believe with all my heart that Christmas is about hope. It's about redemption. The story of Christmas is really about God not giving up on us. It's about God believing in us. In the Garden of Eden, God talked with us. In the Ark of the Covenant, God protected us. In the temple, God sanctified us. In the lion's den, God intervened for us. In the fiery furnace, God stood with us. In the preaching of the prophets, God sought to redeem us, rescue us, and revive us. In the Christmas story, the incarnation, God is saying to us, He believes in us. He becomes one of us. A mere mortal, a mere creature. And sometimes we got to look beyond the gifts, and the presents, and the lights, and the chocolate, and look at the manger. It is there that redemption is wrote out. It's there that redemption is seen for not only us, but for the whole world. John the Baptist said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God which is slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus is not only the victim, He's the victor. He's the answer to our society. And not only did the angel say, His name shall be called Jesus, but 800 years 
before the angel spoke to Joseph and gave him a name for that baby, 800 years before, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah. He wrote a book called Isaiah, and it is a prophet, it is poetry. And within the pages of that narrative, within the pages of that book, this prophet called Isaiah foretold of a child that would come. And the Bible says, he said this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. You see, my friends, Isaiah saw a day where a baby would be born, and this baby would be the solution to man's problems. Now, last week, I looked at this particular passage of Scripture, and I said to you that each week we're going to take one of those names, and we're going to explore that name and see how that name is significant, not only in Scripture, but how it is applicable to our lives today. Last week, we looked at Wonderful Counselor. And this week, we're going to look at the second name called Mighty God. Mighty God. Now, for you to understand what's really happening in Isaiah chapter number 9, it's very important that you understand the context of what's happening here. I won't bore you with the details, but I think it's important for me to explain to you so that you can understand a full picture of what is going on in Isaiah chapter number 9. The prophet Isaiah is speaking about the southern kingdom of Israel, which is known as Judah. And in this particular time frame, in this particular time and space, when Isaiah wrote this, Judah, who is God's people, is in darkness. They're feeling hopeless. They they feel kind of gloomy and depressed. Do you know why? Because the Assyrians are getting ready to invade them. They feel hopeless. They don't have the latest machinery. They don't have the latest weaponry. They don't know what to do. They are in darkness of mind and spirit. They feel hopeless and they feel helpless. And then by the Spirit of God, Isaiah writes this to the people of God and says to them that a child would be born and this child's name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. He goes on to say that the government will rest upon his shoulders. I think the prophet is foretelling of Jesus. But I also think that the prophet is also letting them know that you're going to have a new king one day. And this king is going to be way different than all of the kings that you've had before. This king is going to be a wise and trusted counselor. He's going to be full of wisdom. He's going to know what to say to the other nations. He's going to be a mighty God. In other words, he's going to be a mighty ruler. He's going to be like a father to you. Because kings were like fathers to their countries. And he's going to bring peace to the nation. You see, Isaiah is saying that you're going to get another king. And he's going to come. And he's going to sit on the throne of David. But what Isaiah didn't understand was that he was prophetically speaking of Jesus. And you know what? Through the Holy Spirit, 
that Isaiah was saying? Isaiah was saying that your problems cannot be fixed through your military might. Your problems can't be fixed by how strong your armies are. Your problems won't even be fixed even if you do win the battle. He said your problems are much deeper than that. You need somebody that's different than all the other kings that you've ever had. All the other kings that you've had, they failed you. All the other kings were a disappointment to you. Isaiah is prophetically speaking that someday you're going to receive a new king. And this king is going to be a child. And this king is going to be different than all the other kings that you've ever experienced in your life. In fact, the whole government will rest upon his shoulders. He's going to be the most wise person. He's going to be the most perfect father. He's going to be the person that will bring peace to the country. He's going to be an amazing king. And ladies and gentlemen, 4,000 years later, we can look at this text and we can actually see that he's speaking of Jesus here. He said his name would be called not only Wonderful Counselor, but his name shall be called Mighty God. Mighty God. You know, what do I mean by Mighty God? Well, the word mighty in Hebrew means ruler. It means warrior. It means uh, brave. It means strong. It's champion. That makes sense, don't it? I mean, Isaiah is speaking to a particular people. He's saying that you're going to get a king that's going to, he's going to be like a warrior. He's never going to lose a battle. But we know after thousands of years, this is Jesus. He's mighty. He's a hero. He's a warrior. He's strong. He said he's mighty. He's God. The word God here is El, which is one of the names of God. Yahweh is another name that this is ascribed to. So Isaiah is saying a king is going to come. A ruler is going to come. He's going to be like a hero. He's going to be a champion, but he's going to be God. Now, my friends, let's stop here for a moment. That's kind of disturbing, isn't it? It's disturbing to say that your king, your ruler, your hero is going to be God. Why is that disturbing? Because Israel never worshipped their kings. Now all the other nations around them held their kings as gods. You know, Rome worshipped their emperor. Their emperor was known as God on earth. All the other kings around them, excuse me, all the other nations around them worshipped and paid homage to their kings. But Israel was a city set on the hill. It was a light to the other nations. They did not worship their king. They only had one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. They only worshiped one God, and the king wasn't their God. But here in this scripture, Isaiah is saying that you're going to receive a king, a warrior, a champion is going to come to the forefront, and he's not just going to be any champion. He's not going to be any hero. He's going to be God. Can you imagine those who are reading the scriptures scratching their head? Ah, how can our king be God? But that's what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying, you're going to have a child. 
He's going to be the king. He's going to change things. The government's going to be upon his shoulders. And he's going to be God. And ladies and gentlemen, my friends, listen to Pastor Josh's heart. Isn't that the Christmas story? The Christmas story is about how God came to earth. I want you to think about the greatest mystery ever known to man. God became one of us. Mighty God, God came down. Max Licato said it so beautifully. He said, and I quote, If our greatest need was for information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need was technology, then God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need was money, then God would have sent us a banker. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent a Savior. You see, that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is not about shopping and food. and It's not even about your family. I'm sorry to bust your bubble. It's, it's not even about how good you are. Christmas is about one thing, and that is that Christ came down. That Christ came down. Is there anybody in the building that can just wave your hand and that you're thankful that Christ came down? Come on, is there anybody that can wave your hand and say, I still believe that Christ came down? He came down. He, 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 he stepped off of his exalted throne into a lowly manger. He stepped out of his royal robe into swaddling clothes. He left the worship of the heavenly host to be exposed to the climates of nature. He left the fragrance of incense of heaven to be born in the stench of a stable. My friends, that is Christmas. It's not about a cosmic overweight man in the heavens giving America everything they want. It's about a lowly man coming down, stripping himself of divinity and stretching his arms out saying, this is how much I love you. Santa may live in the North Pole, but my Jesus lives everywhere. I know I read this every year and I'm going to read it again. Santa lives in a sleigh. But Jesus rides on the winds and walks on the water. Santa only comes once a year. But Jesus is the ever-present help in the time of trouble. Santa comes down through the chimney. But Jesus stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. Santa fills your stockings with goodies. But Jesus supplies your every need. You have to wait in line to see old Santa Claus but Jesus is as close as the mention of his name. Santa lets you sit on his lap, but Jesus holds your hand. Santa has a belly full of jelly, but Jesus has a heart full of love. Santa's little helpers make new toys, but Jesus makes new lives. Santa puts gifts under the tree, but Jesus became our gift and died upon the tree. My friends, Christmas is about how he came down. 
Oh, my friends, no wonder the hymnists pen these words. What child is this who lays to rest on Mary's lap sleeping? Whom angels greet and anthems sweet while shepherds watch their keep? What kind of child was born on the hills of Judea? What kind of child would make a heavenly host step out on the Judean hillside and begin to sing where shepherds ran in fright? They didn't understand. God came down and was born of mere mortals. You see, I don't want you to confuse who Jesus truly is. Jesus is not only the wonderful counselor, but he is the mighty God. As a Christian, there are 2.3 billion Christians in the world, and 98% of all Christians believe in the Trinity. The Trinity expresses the doctrine of this, that God is one in essence, but three in person. God is one and three at the same time, but not in the same way. In other words, God is one in being, but three in person. There is not a perfect analogy for the Trinity, but you know H2O can take on the form of water, vapor, and ice. But if you break down the water, the vapor, and the ice, it's all H2O. You see, God is one. The Trinity does not teach that there are three gods. There is only but one God who expresses himself in three distinct persons, and you see that throughout the the Scriptures. Now, for the sake of time, the second person of the Godhead, who is known as Jesus the Christ, he came and was born of the Virgin Mary. The ancient creed of the church is this. It is called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is over almost 2,000 years old. Now, the Nicene Creed was written in the year 325 approximately. The Apostles' Creed is around the same time. This creed was handed to the Christians early right after Jesus' death and resurrection. And what did the early church believe? They believed the Apostles' Creed. Why is this important? Because the Bible did not come together to around 367 A.D. About 367 367 years after the time of Christ is when the Bible, the New Testament, was formulated. Now, how do they know what to believe in those 300 years? Some people couldn't read. They was illiterate. They had the bishops, the leaders of the church, those who could read. They read the scriptures, studied the scriptures, and formulated a creed. The word creed means I believe, and this creed was recited in all the churches. And what does it say? It says this. This creed is taken from scripture. It is not from, it is not apart from scripture. It is found in scripture. The creed says this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Look at the second verse. Who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. 
And it goes on to say, he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Do you see where the, the creed says that he was born of the virgin Mary? In other words, Jesus was a human. He had a earthly mother. He was born of an earthly mother. This doctrine is known as the doctrine of the incarnation. Would you say this real loud with me this morning? Incarnation. I want you to shout it out. Incarnation. Now, I want you to notice something this morning, church. My purpose this morning is not necessarily to make you shout. My purpose this morning is to teach you the fundamental purpose of Christmas. And that is the incarnation incarnation. You may know all about it, but there are people going to this church that's never heard of the word incarnation. And I think it's very sad that we would attend a church and not know the fundamental orthodox teaching of the Christian faith, which states that Jesus was born of the virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I, when you hear the word incarnation, I'm not talking about carnations. I'm not talking about flowers. Nor am I talking about reincarnation, and reincarnation is when people believe that animals can become people, or people can become, and I know some of you probably would like that to happen to some folks, but we don't believe that. So we believe in incarnation. And what do I mean by incarnation? I thought it was so important that I had to, had them to put it on the screen because I don't want you to lose me. The incarnation refers to the choice and the acts of the pre-existed divine being, namely the Son of God. That the Son took a human being, or took to become a human being. He took on flesh. He became fully and truly human without ceasing to be fully and truly divine. That is the incarnation. Divinity is not something that Jesus acquired later in life or even after his death or his resurrection. According to the theology of the incarnation, he had always been the divine son or God, even before he became Jesus, a human being. Strictly speaking, the name of Jesus only applies to him being human. It is the name The Son of God acquired once he became a human being in the womb of Mary, a name which he maintains to this very day as he continues to be a human being. The the incarnation is a miracle, but yet it is a mystery at the same time. What are you saying? I'm simply saying that God became a man, and that is incarnation. God became a man, but yet he remained as God. How can he come down and be a human and at the same time remain as God? That is what I refer to as the incarnation. Very quickly, I want to read a few scriptures to you to establish my point. Number two, I want you to see that Jesus, this is a part of the incarnation, that Jesus pre-existed his birth. Jesus pre-existed his birth. The Bible says in John chapter 1 verse number 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Can everybody shout, was God? 
Everybody shout, is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 1. The Bible says in John chapter number 17 and verse number 5, listen to the scripture here. And now, Father, glorify me in the presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Jesus said, Father, give me the glory that I had like I had with you before the world began. Jesus preexisted his birth. Look at this, John chapter 17 and verse number 3. John chapter 17 and verse number 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me. And now, Father, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Do you see what he's saying? I was with the Father before the world began. I preexisted my birth. John chapter 8 and verse number 58, Jesus said this to the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus preexisted his birth. Number three, Jesus is the creator. He is not the creature. Jesus is the creator. He's not the creature. Now listen to this scripture. Colossians chapter number 1 verse 15. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in the heavens, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the creator. He is not the creature. Jesus was not created. And if somebody tells you that Jesus was created, they are a heretic. That is against scripture. It's against orthodox teaching. Jesus preexisted his birth. He's the creator. He's not the creature. Can I hear an amen? Now the Jehovah Witnesses will take this scripture and say, aha, Jesus is created. Because look at verse number 15, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Jehovah Witnesses, the reason why they're called Jehovah Witnesses is because they deny that Jesus is God. They deny that Jesus pre-existed his birth. They deny Jesus' divinity. And that is why Jehovah Witnesses are a Christian cult. And Mormonism's, Mormonism is also called a Christian cult because they deny an aspect of Jesus' divinity. If you do not believe that Jesus is divine, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you cannot be a Christian. This is very fundamental. This is orthodox teaching. This is what we believe as Christians. Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus is God. He is the creator. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the eternal father. He is the second person of the Godhead who had become man, who died upon the tree and laid aside his divinity. The Jehovah Witnesses will say, well, he's the firstborn over creation, which means he was created. But in the Greek, it doesn't mean he was created. It means that he was the firstborn as in the right to rule over creation. Because in the Old Testament, remember, the blessing went to the first child, gave them the right to rule. 
Jesus has the right to rule because he's the only begotten of the Father. Hebrews chapter number 1 verse 2, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed through all things, and through him he also made the the universe. Jesus is not the creature. Jesus is the what? The creator. Jesus is the creator. Number four, a part of this doctrine called the incarnation, it it means that not only is Jesus, not only is Jesus pre-existed his birth, not only is Jesus the creator, not the creature, but Jesus is fully divine, which means he's God. How do we know that in Scripture? John chapter 10, verse 33. Listen to this. For this reason, they tried more to kill him. For not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his Father, making him equal with God. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received faith as precious as ours. Do you see what Peter called him? Peter said he's God. Peter called him Savior. Jesus is God and he's Savior. The Bible says in Titus chapter 2 verse 13, listen to the words of Titus. While we wait for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Here is another apostle, a believer saying that Jesus is not only a Savior, he's God. Matthew chapter 2, verse 7, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, only Jesus, only God could forgive sins. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, what does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Because Jesus was forgiving sins. 1 John chapter 3 verse 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him there is no sin. He is God because he has no sin. He's never sinned. Number five, Jesus is worshiped and Jesus is prayed to. The Bible says in John chapter 14 and verse number 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus is to be worshipped. Jesus is to be prayed to. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 28 verse 9, and suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Then they came to him. They collapsed at his feet. And what did they do? They worshiped him because Jesus deserves to be prayed to. He deserves to be worshiped to. In closing, Jesus, a part of this incarnation, is that Jesus is not only divine, not only is he God, not only does he need to be worshiped, not only does he need to be prayed to, not only did he pre-exist his birth, but Jesus is fully human. That's the incarnation. How can you be God and human at the same time? Jesus is fully human. John chapter 1 verse 14, the Word became what? Flesh. The Word became what? Flesh. And dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians 2.9 For in Christ... 
all the fullness of the deity is in bodily form. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but it was all points tempted like we are yet without sin. He's human because he was tempted, but yet he didn't sin because he's God. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent a son born of a woman. He is fully human because he was born of a woman. John chapter 19, verse 38, Jesus is hanging on the cross. And what does he say? I am thirsty. Do you know why he said that? Because he's human. What are you saying, pastor? I'm saying Christmas is about understanding this doctrine called incarnation. It means that Jesus is fully human, 100%. It means that Jesus should be worshipped and prayed to. It means that Jesus is 100% divine. It means that he pre-existed his birth. It means that he is the creator and not the creation. Now, the question is, is how can you be fully 100% God and 100% man at the same time? Theologians call it the hypostatic union when the human and the divine come together all in one place. Jesus is human and he's divine. Jesus is human and he's divine. As a man, he sleeps in the boat, but as God, He commands the winds and the waves to be still. As man, he is hungry. But as God, he multiplies the loaf and the fish. As man, he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. But as God, he resurrects Lazarus from the grave. As man, he dies on the cross. But as God, he resurrects himself from the grave, singing, there ain't no grave going to hold my body down. He is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. What does it mean? How can you be human and divine at the same time? The incarnation teaches us this. When Jesus became born of a woman, he did not cease. Listen to me. He didn't cease to be God. He, it meant that he accepted the limitations of time, space, knowledge, and power. When Jesus walked this earth, he was 100% God, but he was 100% human. And it meant that Jesus accepted the limitations of what it meant to be human. You say, well, pastor, that doesn't make sense. It makes perfect sense. Look at the scripture. Mark chapter 13, 32. Jesus on earth says, that day and hour no man knows, not even the angels in heaven, not even the sun. How can Jesus say he doesn't know when he will return? Because Jesus on earth accepted the limitations of humanity. In other words, did Jesus have access to the knowledge? Yes, but he chose not to draw from it. Could he have killed the religious leaders by the swipe of his hand? Yes, but he chose not to do it. He was 100% God, 100% human, but when he came to earth, he accepted the limitations of time, space, knowledge, and power. In other words, let me break it down to modern day language. Jesus walked on earth as a human, but he had the God button. 
He could have hit the God button at any time and do anything he wanted to do, but he chose not to do it. Do you know what he did? He lived his life as an example for us. In other words, he was tempted in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, Jesus, if you are divine, that's what it was about. Satan said, if you're really divine, show me some of your power. And Jesus said, no, 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 it is written. He could have hit the God button. He chose not to. He accepted his limitations. You know what Jesus is doing? Jesus has set an example for us because Jesus knows that you're not God. He set the example as a human for you. And what should you do when you face temptation? You should quote the scriptures. Jesus accepted the limitations of humanity. You say, well, what about when he healed the sick and raised the dead? Was he not divine? He was divine, but he didn't use his power. Oh, pastor, Jesus never used his power. Because the Bible says in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28, Jesus referred to, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead, not because he's divine or because he's God. He did it because the Holy Spirit empowered him to do it. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. How he went about healing all who were sick and oppressed of the devil. Jesus never hit the God button to heal someone. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Jesus was living his life as an example to you. That you should be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you can heal the sick. And you can raise the dead. And you can cast out demons. And you can walk in the Spirit. does it mean that Jesus has become incarnated? The scripture says, Paul says, in your relationship with one another, let this mind be in you. This was a hymn of the church. Let this mind be in you. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider it equal or robbery with God, something to be used for his own advantage. He was God. Look, he was God, but he didn't use it for his own advantage. What did he do? He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant and became in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to the death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at his name every knee would bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What, 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 why did you preach on the incarnation? Well, who cares? I care. I'm your pastor. I'm telling you that the incarnation is about Jesus accepting his limitations. And some of you, you act like you're God. You think you can do it all. You think you can work and work and work and run and run and run. You think you're God. The incarnation tells us that you can't do it all. The incarnation tells us that you're limited. The incarnation forces us to quote the scriptures and to rely upon the Holy Spirit. The incarnation tells us that you're not made to do it all. That sometimes you've got to accept your own limitations. The Bible says he humbled himself. The incarnation teaches us that humility is the posture 
of a strong person who steps down to serve others. That is what the incarnation is about. Jesus, the strong person, Jesus, the God-man, stepped out of heaven and took upon him the likeness of flesh. He was crucified as a slave. He was humble. Humility is the posture of a strong person stepping down to serve. Think about it. Think about it. If you're not serving, maybe you don't know what the incarnation's about. If you have a desire to be served, and this is funny, some people won't serve in the church unless they're asked to serve, as if we got to plead with you to get your attendance. It should be the very heart of a Christian to serve. It should be the very heartbeat of the incarnation of Christmas. I serve. Jimmy Swigger said, true servanthood is when the pastor can take off his title and take the usher title. And the usher can take the title of the pastor. St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, this cosmic sugar daddy who fulfills the dreams of the materialistic narcissist people of America. But Christmas is not about a sugar daddy. It's about God who left the worship of angels, the God who stripped himself of his own rights and came down and was born of a mere woman. That is the story of how every one of us should lay down our life for the world. It's Christmas is about serving. It's about compassion. That's why I ask you, this year we're doing something different. I'm asking you to be a discipler. You pick someone to bless. You pick someone to speak into. You pick, pick someone to love. You be incarnation to someone. When Christmas becomes about fulfilling our desires, our needs, then it becomes anti-Christ. Because that's not what it means. It's good. I'm all about it. But first things come first. I want to understand what it means to be incarnated for a world that's broke and dying. He stepped out of of his exalted throne to a lowly manger. He stepped out of his royal robes into swaddling clothes. He left the worship of the heavenly angels to be ridiculed by mere sinners. He left the fragrance of heaven to be born in the stench of a manger. Sometimes at Christmas, you're like, where is he? Sometimes you got to stop in the hustle and bustle. Stoop down a little bit. Maybe your knees are feeble, but just stoop stoop down. Go over to the manger. Sometimes you got to wipe the hay off of his face. Got to ignore the stench of the animals. You got to realize that God is usually born in the middle of of all your mess. But some of us can't see him because you got to take time. Got to wipe the hay off of his face. He's there. You can hear him crying. He's in the proximity. God was born in the middle of our messes. That's why Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. God believed in us so much, he decided to become one of us. You know why? Because my problem was so big It takes God to fix it. That's why he had to come. Only God could fix this problem. What a name. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Would you stand to your feet? Amen. Would you give the Lord a shout of praise?
Halleluja.